Hey, everybody, this is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast Podcast Network. I'm Stephen Cox. So uh, we're going to do something special today. Uh, First and foremost, I I hope everybody is doing as well as uh, can be expected right now. I mean, these are just unprecedented times, and there is so much uncertainty, and I know there's a hell of a lot of anxiety. I'm certainly feeling it, and I know you probably are too. And so I was thinking about this conversation that I had three weeks ago with Anna Gowland. She is the former executive director of Move On Civic Action, and she had recently uh, written a piece for The Nation called Against Despair, A Case for Optimism After the Impeachment Trial. And this was actually for another podcast that I am doing called Political Anxiety that is currently on hold. Now, (laughs) three weeks ago feels like another lifetime at this point apart from it being before coronavirus was really taking hold. Bernie Sanders was leading in the primaries, and there was this fear of a contested convention. And her piece in The Nation was largely in response to Trump's acquittal in the impeachment trial, which (laughs) that also feels like a billion years ago. But, you know, there's ultimately so much good stuff in this conversation, I think. Things that people can really stand to hear. And Anna is just such a, a wonderful and reassuring presence that I am moved to share this with you now. So enjoy. Anna Galland is an organizer and strategist who has led progressive campaigns for two decades, and she served as executive director of Move On Civic Action from 2012 to 2019. And she recently wrote an article for The Nation entitled Against Despair, A Cause for Optimism After the Impeachment Trial. She is our very first guest. It is so cool. Anna Galland, thank you so much for, for doing this. Of course, happy to be here. So, you know, I I think the article is just great. I think that it can maybe help people reframe things a little bit uh, because this is a show by and for people who deal with anxiety and depression and mental health issues generally uh, as they spring up around political uh, issues. I'll just start by asking, are you seeing anxiety and depression in your personal circles right now? So it's funny. My my husband is a therapist. Oh wow! So the answer is yes. Well, should we get him on the not, line too? Maybe he can uh, he can weigh yeah, in on right. some of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> a joint podcast. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, I've heard from him um, that in the aftermath of Trump's election, and regularly over the last few years, he has um, encountered people whose um, you know baseline mental health state is um, worsened by the kind of onrushing of terrible political news. Um, And I certainly have seen what I would characterize as a kind of spike of anxiety and dread, not that I can diagnose because I'm not a therapist, but as an organizer, I've seen a kind of spike of um, low morale in progressive leaning circles. Um, In I would say the aftermath of the impeachment uh, trial was when I really got kind of obsessed with it and wanted to write something publicly. Yeah. Um, well, why do you yeah, think so that I, is? Yeah. I mean, because that is the jumping off point for your piece, right, was the impeachment trial. And, you know, we knew that the GOP was going to uh, acquit Trump. We, we knew that going into it. And so I'm wondering, why do you think that the impeachment outcome ultimately felt so devastating? Yeah, it's a good question. I'm someone, I should say, who as a strategist, I, I was and remain very supportive of 
the Democratic um, leadership's decision to initiate impeachment. Move on worked on a campaign for years saying this guy deserves to be impeached. I think it was the right thing to do for the Constitution and country. Um, And then the outcome, as you said, was once the impeachment um, proceedings made their way through the House over to the Senate, most pundits said it's not going to end in a conviction. So it wasn't surprising, but I think it was still disheartening. And, and you know, here's the thing. We have to be, I think, honest with ourselves that the outcomes of the um, uh, failure to hold him accountable, I don't want to call it an acquittal. It was a failure of accountability. I think that's a good framing. Um, Yeah. Right. Um, The outcome is, in fact, some dangerous trends could accelerate things like the erosion of the rule of law and demonization of immigrants and Muslims and other bad stuff. So I think it's important to be clear-eyed that that was bad. (laughs) On the other hand, it's incredibly important, I think, both for reasons of realism and also the kind of strategic imperative not to lean into self-defeating and um, sort of demotivating despair. Right there's it's both not actually justified to decide that everything is terrible, and it's also self-defeating, and it will, uh, I think, work against us at the kind of level of building courage and commitment to do the work, and at the level of um, sort of stay equipping ourselves with the information and the kind of momentum to build the powerful and winning movement that we need. Totally, totally agreed. And, you know, you talk about sort of unjustified pessimism and it is really hard not to go there, but we are seeing a lot of that same type of thinking around Trump's reelection prospects, right? Because um, mm-hmm. people are treating it as if it's a foregone conclusion, but the numbers just don't bear that out. Chris Hayes had a really great piece recently that kind of went viral um, where he talked about how you know people were sort of throwing up their hands and, and resigning themselves to another four years of Trump when you know all of the candidates, the, at least the top five, I believe, in the recent Quinnipiac poll beat Trump uh, even in two out of the three um, swing states. Why do we, right. why do we think there's so much pessimism around the election? Are we just afraid to get our hopes up? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. And I, I mean, really, you've put your finger on it. There's two fronts that I think are feeding people's dark moods around our politics right now. At least two. Let's just let's okay. focus on two. <laughs> we'll limit it to two. Yeah. Right? Yeah. One is the democracy and the health of the democracy, and two is the prospects for Trump's reelect. And I think on both of those fronts, there are real genuine fact-based reasons to be hopeful not hopeful like great i'm going to go on vacation for the next 11 months but hopeful in the sense of rededicating yourself to digging in where you find it most nourishing and where you can be most useful to the yeah. kind of collective project we have um and i so going to the the reelect question yeah there's really good data and sometimes polls are a not a good friend. <laughs> no, they call it the polar era. coaster for a reason, you know. Yeah, so. exactly. Like they, you will go up and down, and and honestly, it's um, I don't know. In some sense, I almost think it might be a good idea to look at a decent poll that fuels your morale, and then ignore them. Like just you know, mute the threads <laughs> when they come it. up. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. I'm turning um, it off. Yeah. Yeah, turn them off. Um, and the reason is, look, here's other fundamentals that matter way more than the kind of ups and downs of the polar coaster. The fact that strong grassroots organizing and mobilization are an underpinning to the prospect of defeating Trump in 2020. 
that's just real. It, we have to have excellent mobilization and organizing ongoing in order to, to defeat Trump and also to flip the Senate. And what we're seeing, there's this one fact that I, I've loved. There's a great study that came out from Harvard um, that looked actually at the Tea Party movement in yeah. 2010 and found that this is just a really cool study. They looked at places where a planned rally on tax day was rained out and looked at those places, voter turnout in those places versus comparable communities where it hadn't rained. And they found that this one rally, just one rally on one day in 2000, I think the rally was in 2009, translated into totally different voting participation outcomes the next year. That is to say, protesting and mobilizing has impacts way down the road on voter behaviors and that right sorry, there that should a little mitigate. bit of a wonky digression no but no, no, no it's fascinating we are. yeah and yeah. You, you provide a link to that in the article and i'm going to be providing the article for people to check out at the website so and i encourage people to check out that study because i think it really mitigates that sense of helplessness that a lot of yeah. us feel and shows that there's a direct correlation between the action that we take as activists and uh voter and turnout, voter turnout. For yeah yeah which what could, what could I mean, be more important and consequential of- yeah, exactly. I mean, I this is maybe a little hokey, and but I literally found it useful to picture those giant crowds. Like, if you remember the feeling that you had at any one of the mobilizations you attended over the well, let's talk about the first women's rally. You know, the, yeah, the after the, the election, it was, it was huge. It was the biggest uh, mass demonstration, I believe, in the country's history. In U.S. history, exactly, and you could see it on people's faces if you were there at any one of the mobile at, at any one of the rallies, not just in Washington, but anywhere. I was at the one in Chicago, and people just looked like they were taking a breath for the first time in a long time. Yep. Um, and I think that that just think about those crowds and imagine them marching to the polls. So that's one. Uh, the second, I think, reason to be hopeful about the November elections is that, and this is, I think, counterintuitive, but I want to make the argument that the Democratic primary is building a giant wave of election energy. And I mean that in the sense of some of the nuts and bolts of what are being built, the organizing teams that are coming together, the people who are being trained on voter contact and communications and organizing, the data that's being gathered on what people care about that's being maintained by the campaigns, by, yes, in some cases, the Democratic Party. Um, And just the way in which people are tuning into organizing and politics in a whole different way at the same time that there's a much louder drumbeat way earlier than I and way louder than I can remember calling for eventual unity right so there's a fierce messy primary everyone has their own feelings about that primary and but at the end of the day that infrastructure that energy that kind of um, process is going to flow into a fierce general election fight. And there's things like uh, an organization called Organizing 2020 that's training a thousand organizers who are ready to staff up the general election campaign. So no one's waiting for the nominee to be finalized. Um, you know, right. Either they're working on a primary campaign or they're working in parallel to make sure we're all ready to go together when it comes to the general. Yeah, there's all sorts of stuff that's happening on the ground right now. I can attest because I've been volunteering with Indivisible since 2017. They are that's doing great. something called the Payback Project, which is aimed at flipping now 10 uh, Senate seats in 2020. There's all sorts of organizing on the ground um, that so when we do eventually have a nominee, 
it should click into place. And as you say, there's just this great groundswell of energy. And listen to me. I'm, I'm sounding all optimistic. <laughs> it's uh, it, No, it's great. It's it, And I'm yeah. it, it's not necessarily my default mode, but um, I think we kind of have to push ourselves in that direction. I mean, you... You did mention the disunity around Democrats, and I'll just drill down on that a little bit because we are recording this on Wednesday the 26th, the day after the 10th debate, which honestly, mm-hmm. it just was, it gave me it a sad. Um, <laughs> it was just <laughs> absolutely brutal, apart from the fact that C- CBS should never be allowed to uh, moderate yeah. a debate ever <laughs> again uh, in, in the future. But I mean, th- coming off of something like that, I, I will just ask you, because you seem like a pretty optimistic person, what were your baseline thoughts about what you saw in that last night and how... A, that might be kind of triggering for a lot of people who are freaked out to begin with, but also how do you then extrapolate from the sorts of divisions that we saw and the very profound divisions that we saw uh, among the candidates and how you feel that the Democrats will eventually unify around a single candidate? Yeah. Um, well, first, one slight uh, friendly amendment. I'm less of an optimist than I am a grateful pessimist. That is to say, when I see, I, I tend to organize my life as if things are not going to go particularly well, but then I'm so thrilled when they do. Okay. Uh, it's just that in this case, I find myself arguing for optimism because I think that we are, as a kind of collective uh, community of people who are progressive leaning, I think we are just way off the edge of where we ought to be on yeah. the merits. And as I said, I think it's counter-strategic. Um, but yeah, on, on the debate, the South Carolina debate, and I think this speaks to the broader dynamic of this very tricky Democratic primary context, what makes me so hopeful is that the Warren and Sanders campaigns have been, uh, I think, the, the, most late, the most recent polling, don't look at polling, but <laughs> to the extent that you do, they're out front. There's a, there's a kind of pro, an emerging progressive consensus. The center of gravity in the Democratic Party is shifting not to the left, but I think to the practical, given the stakes of the challenges we face as a, as a country and as a world. Um, and that's thrilling, right? Like there are, we're having a real conversation about climate as I mean, a country, it's, which it's was pretty, not something we could have taken for granted. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty fascinating when you look at the way that, say, the uh, debates happened in, say, 2008, 2012, even to even 2000 or 2016 and you look at now and the idea of a public option was considered so radical oh previously yeah. and now that's the moderate position so things really that's are right. moving uh, leftward that's right and the the most bitter one of the one of my favorite um, quips about the latest democratic debate was that it uh, is appropriate or apt that it was sponsored by Twitter because yeah. watching the debate sort of felt like reading your Twitter timeline, yes. just yelling past each other. Yeah. But one thing that I find kind of comforting is that something like only 10% of voters in recent contests have even found their political news from Twitter. If you're on Twitter all the time, you can think that this is how the world talks to each other now, and it's just not. It's, oh my it's God, it is the worst there. place, and I am utterly addicted to it. And I mean, how do you... <laughs> no, and it's, it's, it's really awful, and I, I know even when I'm on it, I'm like, get the fuck off of this. This is terrible for you. (laughs) How do you navigate it? I mean, let me ask you this. How would you recommend that people navigate um, a, a political news source like Twitter? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, we all, we, we flaw, those who, of us who read Twitter or other um, quick hit sort of, you know, uh, news sources like a social media feed, 
the the benefit of it is you do want to know what's happening right now. You want to know what yeah. new developments there are. It feeds something. I would maybe recommend something I found helpful is for every, um, you know, and I don't adhere to this scientifically, but I try for every chunk of time I spend staring down into Twitter to pull back and read something that's a longer arc or from history or a kind of bigger picture analysis of what it is I'm trying to understand. So there's a collection that I uh, love. It's called The Impossible Will Take a Little While by Paul uh, Loeb. Um, that's just a collection of works by people like uh, Arundhati Roy and Bill McKibben and Tony Kushner and Wendell Berry and just people who have a perspective that extends and a time frame of analysis that extends longer than, you know, 30 characters or whatever. Um, so pull yourself back. Look at the longer arc of the world because it's actually the kind of breathless hyperbole and catastrophizing that is the kind of dominant mode on Twitter is not helpful and actually isn't the full picture. Yeah, I'm going to pick up that book and put it right on my desk right here so that I can just pick it up and turn to a passage when I'm uh, bogged down in Twitter. That's that's fantastic advice. Um, you mentioned something in your article that I would like to uh, just shine a little bit of a light on because I think it is super important. You mentioned that marginalized communities are currently gaining more institutional power. And I'm wondering First of all, why you think that yeah. is and why uh -huh. is it happening now? Is it in reaction to this extraordinary overreach by the Trump administration mm. and the GOP? What, what's your take on that? Yeah, it's a good question. And you put your finger on something, which is that in the piece that I put in The Nation, I tried to go from kind of most um, near term, like how do you win the election, to kind of biggest picture, why is the universe not in trouble? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and this one is in the context, actually, I think of both. That is to say, um, I am seeing uh, across the board of the different sectors that I have visibility into, that is to say, media outlets, nonprofit organizations, the Democratic Party at various levels, uh, corporations that uh, interface with all of the above, um, like, you know, even groups like Act Blue that process small donations. And as a quick aside, Act Blue. Uh, processed a billion dollars in uh, donations to progressive candidates and causes last year from six million individuals. So again, if you're trying to kind of refuel your hope, think about that giant crowd of people, six million people who are contributing their money to try and uh, turn you know democracy in the right direction. That makes me feel anyway, better just um, thinking about it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a great. I like. I like. I, I kind of like to remember our numbers. <laughs> this right. is one reason I think why people have uh, repeatedly come back to Hillary Clinton's uh, victory margin, right? Um, yeah, but the, the thing that I um, have seen across the board, again, in media outlets, corporations, nonprofits, the party, um, is a, a kind of overdue ca a period of playing catch up to where we really should have been as a country uh, decades ago, but hadn't gotten there in terms of representation uh, in leadership, uh, in the people who are staffing those organizations, in the people who are um, celebrated and lifted up with leadership positions and volunteer roles. Like there's just been a kind of um, accelerated, especially I think post Black Lives Matter, there's been a kind of consciousness shift in our country um, that recognizes that uh, white, supremacy, white supremacy is a thing that recognizes that we have work to do to kind of update our collective analysis and that recognizes that we're going to have to shift power in terms of who leads and who has resources and um, who makes decisions in our, in our democracy. And the way – I mean, look, I think 
we are staring down the barrel, again, being realistic, of something that looks like authoritarianism or potentially like fascism over the long haul. It's a scary, real thing. There's a reason that political anxiety is the name of your podcast. It's totally apt. Um, But the alternative to that, I think, uh, is something we've never yet had. We don't have to go back into the kind of democracy that was perfect that we had uh, when Obama took office. We need to build something we've never yet really inhabited in our lifetime, which is to say an equitable, multiracial democracy that serves everyone, where everyone has an equal voice and an equal say, um, where the economy serves everyone equitably uh, and decently. So yeah, we, we have to build something we haven't yet had. And we're actually making, I think, key strides in that direction. So when I see shifts in representation, when I look at Bernie Sanders's campaign manager, um, or Elizabeth Warren's campaign manager, for that matter, when I look at the leadership of nonprofits across the country, I see a long overdue shift in who's attaining power um, to drive the agenda. Yeah, I completely agree. And it really does feel like we do have a unique opportunity here to, if we can, build something better than the model that we were. Well, let's let's call yeah. it the the pre-existing neoliberal model. We can we can do better. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Really. So you know the the last point that you make in your article, and you've kind of touched on this already, is that uh, I, a lot of people attribute this quote to Martin Luther King, but I don't believe it's his. Uh, but he used That's it. Right. It was the moral arc of the universe does bend toward justice. And, you know, I will just ask you, uh, because I like to do this from time to time, and I'm curious, when you make this, you sort of tick off this list in your head, what are some of the victories that progressives have won over the last 150 years or so that give you hope? Oh, my gosh, I love that exercise. Let's do it together. Um, (laughs) So 150 years, do we have to set it that recent, or can we use a slightly longer? Well, let's let's just, let's go there. You set the parameters where you want. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, let's talk about the, the thousands of years of human history. But, it, but I think it is worth kind of thinking on a slightly longer arc just to say, look, in our uh, not-so-distant lifetimes, right, um, in the lifetimes of our grandparents and great-grandparents, we've come from having legalized slavery and bondage in this country yeah. to the, it's, it's now, you know, kind of uh, – um, sort of seems like the obvious to say, but to the first black president of the United States, like women have come through gaining the right to vote. Queer Americans have can be can live their sort of full selves in this country in the light of day, and rather than being kind of under cover of darkness, just the like multi-pronged civil rights and human liberties movements in this country that have flourished over the last, especially 150 years. Mm-hmm. Those were not. Those were not inevitable. People fought for that. Um, I'm not a student of the environmental movement in the way that many others are, um, but I just even from what I know, holy smokes, we saw the kind of flourishing of a real uh, movement that changed government policy around the use of pesticides, around the Clean Air and Water Act. We had many of the biggest um, transformative kind of legislative regimes get passed under Republican presidents, right? So I think there's a those are just a few off the top. What you got? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm keen to let you have the last word, but I mean, some of the things that I think of off the top of my head, maybe on a more granular level, are like the 40-hour work week, um, yeah. you know, child labor laws, the, the passing mm-hmm. of Social Security so that we can take care of our, you know, our elderly citizens, the Civil Rights Act, uh, women's suffrage, those sorts of things that, you know, when I, when I think what of is, yes. 
how much we have been pulled backwards over the last three years, I also have to consider, well, those things are still largely in place. And uh, I'm just going to have to believe that in doing the work that you and I have, have talked about here, that they are going to continue on and that we will even that we'll make even greater strides. I love that. And I think that um, if you one reason, again, I, I mentioned this book that I use as a kind of antidote to Twitter as one one of many um, called The Impossible Will Take a Little While. Imagine you had, uh, uh, if you had been living in the moment when children in the United States were working in factories without any kind of regulation or protection for their health or anything like that. And it was just unthinkable that there would be a change in that context, right? Right. Um, that it's just worth kind of keeping your imagination alive to the contingency of the moment that we live in and how much the changes to how we live were driven by regular people saying this is intolerable and I'm going to do something about it and taking care of themselves along the way so that they didn't give up right. in the process of, of making a difference. So keep your imagination alive to the contingency of the moment. Um, that sounds like the title of a book. Uh, or at the very least a subheader of a book if you ever choose to write one. Um, look, I could talk all day, um, but this has just been wonderful. I will just tell you flat out, I, I feel a lot better since we've talked. Oh, good. Well, that's, I, I hope that your podcast will do this in every episode for somebody um, because I, I really do feel like, look, we have a long way to go, yeah. um, and there's no need for us to suffer uh, and beat ourselves up and take ourselves into this kind of dark place in doing the essential work of turning our country around, right? So I think taking care of yourself, refueling your hope is a justified and important strategic mission, not just something that's nice to do. So take care. Anna Gallen, you are awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks so much. And that is it for today. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast Podcast Network. Learn more about Demcast at DemcastUSA.com. Thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.